Did you ever wonder where ICOs come from? No, it's not the stork. But our guest on today's show is actually the creator of the world's first ICO. And he's joined by the CEO of a company that intends to place Bitcoin ATMs all over the country and the world. There's lots of fascinating stuff to talk about in episode number 42, the meaning of life episode of the Bad Crypto Podcast. And it is the Bad Crypto Podcast, the Meaning of Life episode, where Travis Wright and I, Joel Com, will get to the bottom of it. Welcome, Travis. Thank you, Mr. Joel Com. It is a pleasure to be here, as always. Episode 42, coming at you. This is a great one, right? So the beginnings of the ICO. How did that happen? Where did it come from? Who was the smart person to think of that? Well, we have him here. His name is J.R. Willett, and he's going to be here. And uh, J.R. is, he also has another big idea, and his big idea led him to a partnership with Neil Bergquist and others at an organization called UpToken, and uh, they're working together now. They are co-conspirators in creating a network of ATMs that will take all kinds of cryptocurrencies. And so uh, we'll get to that in a moment, but want to welcome everybody to the show. Thanks for listening. As always, we continue to be in the midst of bad cryptober. And if you have not yet found out how to claim your free bad coin, how to get up to a million bad coin per person, assuming you're just one person, and to potentially win 25 million bad coin, one person, go to badco.in forward slash bad cryptober. Bad cryptober. <laughs> it's been it's been an amazing ride, this this bad cryptober. There's been a ton of, of stuff going on. Uh, on this, there's been a ton of, of 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 people participating, and you know what's interesting? I don't know if you you knew this or not, Joel, but uh, today is our 100th day of bad crypto. By the way, wow. Well, in that case, pop some champagne and a toast to you, my friend, and to you, our listeners, because uh, couldn't do this without all y'all. Couldn't do this without all y'all for sure. You know what that means, Travis. It means we're coming up on our 50th episode, and uh, we've got something special that we're going to announce next in our next episode that you guys are going to have an opportunity to help us celebrate that. So that's coming your way soon. But what's coming your way right now is our mailbag. Bad crypto voicemail. You have one new message. Yes. Hello there. I'm not the real honor. I just like doing his voice. My real name is Steve. I just wanted to let you know that I really like your show. I like listening to it on Spotify. It's so good. And I really learn a lot, even though you don't teach very much. <laughs> you see what I did there. Okay. Bye. You all stay bad now. You're here. Bad Crypto Inbox. You got mail. So Richard writes in via our contact form. 
And he says, assuming all the new crypto coins being issued have their transactions on their own blockchain, given that many are almost worthless like bad coin, what miner would want to hash the block to get worthless coins? Specifically, are there some miners out there mining the bad coin on the bad coin blockchain? Also, could those miners cause a bad coin fork resulting in a very bad coin? Stay bad. Worst coin. <laughs> An even worse coin. And could you even have bad coin gold? Like, isn't that redundant? <laughs> bad, bad coin 10. I don't know. It's really an interesting question. It's more of a joke than anything. It seemed to me like it seemed like he was just cracking jokes, like because there there are no miners for bad coin, right? It's built on the BitShares blockchain and there there is no miners at all. It's a proof of stake process and all of them are pre-mined. They're, they're out there and now we're just giving them away. We're throwing tokens at people and you don't even feel it other than the love you experience when they land in your BitShares account. There's a lot of ways for you to get them. We talked about Bad Cryptober, so go check that out and find out how you can become a bad coin hodler. Because there's, there's about, I want to say, 850 or so hodlers right now, Travis? Yeah, somewhere around, somewhere around those lines. There's They're getting close to 1,000. So we're sitting at at least 850, I believe. And you can check that link out over there on Crypto Fresh. And uh, that's fun. There's a lot of people out there with some bad coin now. There's something like 200 million bad coin that are now in circulation. And I keep promising that at some point I'm going to do a BitShares tutorial and show people how to trade bad coin so they can dabble with the worthless tokens and, you know, get some experience uh, using the BitShares decks and messing around with token that doesn't cost them, you know, really anything at all. But we'll we'll get to that. Well, Travis, we did have the opportunity to sit down with the founder of the ICO, J.R. Willett, and the co-founder and CEO of Uptoken.org, Neil Bergquist. So what do you say we get right to our feature? I love this interview. You guys are really going to like this. This dude is really smart talking about how he how he had the eureka moment to think of it, the odds that he had to go against and, and his wife that was grumping at him. I mean, it's, it's a fun story. You, you guys are going to like this one. It's... Those cool moments where you get to have a conversation with somebody who was there in the beginning. Uh, Travis, in the beginning, there were ICOs. Actually, in the beginning, there were not ICOs. <laughs> but somebody had to invent them. And, and, and this guy that we have with us today is actually the inventor of the very first initial coin offering, which was the Omni master coin his name is jr willett and we welcome him to the bad crypto podcast hey jr hey thanks for having me here today well thanks for being had uh tell us a little bit about your your entry into cryptocurrency and uh, and then how you decided you know, hey, you know i think we should make an ico because one day those are going to be a big thing and i want to be the first one <laughs> yeah that's actually not what i thought at the time that i did it but i, but I will tell you what was on my mind so getting into cryptocurrency, that was 2010. I was really interested in um, a bunch of really tangential things that happened to line up with Bitcoin. When I was interested in economics, uh, penny stocks. I was, I was following all these penny stocks that would get into these insane bubbles. I don't know if you've ever seen some of the, the penny stocks and what they can do, but it looks a lot like what cryptocurrencies look like sometimes, although it does. Not, not quite as insane. Uh, uh -huh. I mean, cryptocurrencies are, are more insane. 
Uh, and I was also researching payment methods and particularly chargebacks. And I was like, surely someone has invented something that doesn't do chargebacks. And I remember seeing a comment, well, you could always try Bitcoin. What's Bitcoin? So that was my unwitting plunge into the rabbit hole of cryptocurrencies. I remember at that time, there was um, only a couple ways that I could even get cryptocurrencies, in particular Bitcoin. One was I could wire money to this kind of sketchy looking website. It's called Mt. Gox. And if anybody who knows their crypto coin history knows that, uh, that that kind of went down in flames later. And the other way that I knew of was there was this guy in Canada and I could send him an envelope full of cash and he would then send back this new magic internet money called Bitcoin. So this nice. is the... And how the, much were they worth at that magical moment of time? Uh, they were worth a little less than 25 cents each. Oh my goodness. And, and how many did you buy? Uh, not very many. So I, I go to my wife and I say, hey, honey, there's this new magic internet money. It's going to be huge. I just have to put some $20 bills and mail it to this guy in Canada. And, and you know, it's going to be great someday. We had uh, two children and one on the way and not a lot of extra spending money. And so this, was, this did not go over well. <laughs> and, uh, and so my wife and I, we literally argued about this for months. Uh, in the meantime, actually, over um, Christmas break, I actually set up a computer, literally a CPU desktop tower computer to mine Bitcoins. And I actually mined an entire block all by myself on a CPU Christmas break 2010. So that Very was nice. a, a course of a, of a few weeks. So, so that was kind of exciting. I was like, hey, I got like, you know, some tiny, uh, you know, a few dollars worth of Bitcoin, which, which I, I wish I'd kept them all. I, I ended up doing some other things. But so I got into, uh, so I, I, I had a little bit of Bitcoin then. And I was, I was talking to my wife about this and we, we argued about it endlessly. Finally, my birthday came around around the same time as Christmas. And she finally said, here, here's $200. You can flush it down the toilet if that's what you want to do. So uh, I ended up not flushing it down the toilet. I ended up getting into mining more. I ended up at that point, you know, GPUs were starting to accelerate. And my one time of getting lucky with a CPU was probably never going to be repeated. So I started putting these ads on Craigslist. Hey, I will pay to use your GPU for a secret project that I won't tell you what it is. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I took the Bitcoin mining software and I, I, I disguised it. Uh, to look like you know something else, and I said, "Look, it's this cryptography project. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but I will pay you in advance every month to run the software on your video card." And so I got these college kids all over the world who, who were unwittingly mining bitcoins for me through 2011. So that's sort of my my introduction to cryptocurrencies. That, um, nice. It's, so, so you're that's he, hilarious. He man. totally <laughs> Tom Sawyer those. Hey, come uh, paint the fence with me. You know, yeah, it's yeah. fun. Yeah. He, he was do, he was doing that uh, that stuff like that instead of the browsers that are putting Monero software in there and mining for, for crypto. He he was doing this back in 2011 with Craigslist ads. I mean, yeah, that's great. And, and you know, people, I, I was surprised that I didn't have more people try to rip me off because I was paying in advance. I would I would literally as soon as the work started coming in and I saw it that they were mining, I would literally send them the PayPal payment for the whole month. That's the only way I could get people to do it, right? Like, hey, install this weird software on your computer, right? And I'll pay you. I think mean, it's the most naked sounding scam that you can imagine. And how much I, were you paying them to do that? Oh, like 30 bucks a month, something like that. And I was making wow. like, you know, 100 bucks a month in Bitcoin. Something, and, and it varied based on the mining difficulty. So, you know, I was like, hey, you know, I, I pay some and some people will try to scam me. I think I only had one guy 
literally one person who tried to who just you know stop sending the work in as soon as I sent them money. But uh, overall, you know, I, I made a few Bitcoin that way. I was I was pretty happy with that. Okay, so uh, mining and bribing, you know, people to mine for you all worked out really well. So when did you get the idea of this uh, ICO? So I, I think part of the credit has to go to my dad because as I was like, I was, you know, obviously like many people get into cryptocurrencies. That's all I talked about to anybody. And, you know, my dad is, is a really wise guy and knows a lot about, you know, investing. And, and he, he took me aside and said, you know, okay, so obviously there's some sort of gold rush going on here that you're involved with. And I don't really understand it. But what I can tell you is back in the real gold rush, the people that really did well were not the guys out there digging in the hills. These were the, the people that really did well were the people that sold those guys shovels, right? You want to be the guy that it doesn't matter which hill the gold is in. As long as somebody is looking for gold, you're, you know, you're, you're doing well. So I started thinking about this. Like, what does selling shovels look like? And that sort of informed my entire history with cryptocurrency after that point. And so I, I thought, well, you know, there's a lot of things that Bitcoin could do if it just had more um, smarts, you know, smart contracts and that sort of thing. I started to think of Bitcoin not as money or as a payment system, but as a protocol layer. In computer science terms, you have protocol layers already. You have your Ethernet, for instance, is the sort of a bottom-level communication protocol layer. And on top of that, you run TCP/IP, which is uh, another protocol layer. And then on top of that, we run HTTP, which is the web. And you know, so these protocol layers stack up on top of each other, and each one uses the layer below for transport and adds some additional features. I thought, well, what if we could add some additional features to Bitcoin? And so I wrote a paper about it, just, uh, just started working on a paper, like how, could, how would this work? And, you know, it basically came up with this idea of embedding the secret messages into the Bitcoin blockchain that meant additional things on top of regular Bitcoin transactions. And so I was like, well, all right, this is cool. You know, we're, we, we have messages here that could do things like decentralized exchange between people. So we don't have to worry about an exchange getting hacked. We can trade directly with each other. Uh, you know, things like creating your own token, kind of like we're seeing now with ERC-20 tokens, the ability to possibly have tokens that track the value of the U.S. dollar. In fact, later Tether did come along and use our, our protocol for that. It's one of the biggest um, Omni tokens today, hundreds of millions of dollars. But at that point, I was like, well, okay, the, all this cool stuff, but how do, do I pay for it? You know, I don't want to quit my job. Um, you know, I've got small children. I've got a family. And my wife is, is a little allergic to these entrepreneurial ideas that I have. You know, pretty much <laughs> yeah. the only way I'm going to be able to do this if I somehow raise some money. And I thought about it. I was like, well, I guess I could, you know, start flying and talking to venture capitalists. But I, I don't have time for that either. So finally, I just like, well, maybe my new protocol layer can have its own coin. And that, I could just sell that coin now before I've done any of the work really, except for the white paper. But again, I didn't want to do it. I, I literally wanted someone else to be the, to take my paper and do it. I just wanted to be a passive investor in this idea. I was hoping, so I published my paper. I was like, Hey, put it on the Bitcoin forum. Somebody do this so I can you know, send you my Bitcoin. And there were people that were excited about it and they talked about it, but nobody did it. And so that was January 2012 that I published that paper that basically described the whole idea and how to do a coin offering, although I didn't call it an initial coin offering because I wasn't stupid. But the idea of you know exactly what people do with a white paper and, and you know publishing an address and people sending you money, that was all that was all in that white paper. And nobody did it. And nobody did it for a year and a half. I literally waited a year and a half uh, for someone to take my idea and do it. 
finally, I got tired of waiting. I had just gone to this conference in San Jose, the Bitcoin conference uh, in the summer of 2013. And, uh, you know, and I talked about this idea and people seemed really excited about it, but still nobody was doing it. So I was like, all right, fine. I will do it. So I published literally all the first ICO was is I went on the Bitcoin forum and I said, here's my white paper. Here's a video of me talking at this conference about how excited I am about this idea. And, uh, and here's a Bitcoin address. And sure enough, random strangers sent me about half a million dollars worth of Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> it just, nice. Guys on the Bitcoin forum, right? They're just like, hey, sure, this sounds interesting. And I Shortly thereafter, the price of Bitcoin went up tenfold. This was the run up from about, I think it was a $100 a Bitcoin to $1,000 a Bitcoin. So, nice. so that, that myself, turned into a pretty substantial amount, $5 million pretty quick. Right. Huh? I was sitting on $5 million that I needed to then use to build this new project. Yeah, what'd your smarty pants wife have to say then? <laughs> Careful, don't get him in trouble. <laughs> no, no, no. I, you know, she, uh, uh, he's like, oh, I got a divorce and I'm on my second wife now. No, <laughs> no. Uh, thankfully, thankfully, no, she is, she is, uh, she is. Uh, grateful that things ended up working out. But, you know, I mean, if you think about it, over the history of marriage, the number of people that have had a really crazy sounding idea, like sending cash in a mail to a guy in Canada, the number of people that that worked out for is very, very small. So I, I have to give her the benefit of, you know, statistics here. Like most of the time she would have been right. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. I think being cautious, especially when you have a young family is, is wise, but every now and then, it works out as it appears to have done for you. And how long was it after this ICO that somebody else said, hey, look at what JR did. Uh, let's try that. It didn't take long. In fact, um, you know, we started working really hard on building the Omni protocol, as it's called today. At that point, it was called MasterCoin. And basically, as soon as, I mean, even slightly before we had the capability of, of building other tokens on that platform, there was this other c company that was really interested in what we had done. Uh, and there may have been a couple other token sales, I, but the one, next one that I'm familiar with and probably the biggest one at that time was called MadeSafe. And they're still one of the top cryptos today. Uh, they used the Omni platform uh, at that point called MasterCoin. They raised like $5 million in, I think it was like some small number of minutes, uh, like six minutes. You know, it was one of those ones that just, they, they had a cap on it and it sold out almost instantly. So that was the point where I realized that something crazy was happening. Like my own, it sort of seemed like a one-off. Maybe this is a good way to do, to raise money. Maybe it's just crazy. In fact, after I did, after I started collecting funds uh, for Omni, I literally had people on the Bitcoin forum who were messaging me and saying, I've reported you to the SEC. You're, you're doing a security and uh, you're going to go to jail and I'm going to laugh. <laughs> So this really worried me because I hadn't talked to a lawyer. You know, I had just sort of had this crazy idea of selling a cryptocurrency that that, so that would support my project. But I started, I started having nightmares about the SEC SWAT van and, and kicking in my door in the middle of the night. So thankfully, that didn't happen. I, they seem to have taken a slightly more hands-off approach uh, to token sales so far. And I think, you know, in retrospect, uh, the one that I did was actually very much on the utility side of the spectrum and not on the security side of the spectrum. But I don't think if I had talked to a lawyer, I don't think I could have found any lawyer who would have been like, yeah, that sounds great. Go do it. You know, at that point, there was nobody had done anything like that before. It, you needed somebody who was dumb and foolhardy enough to take the plunge before everyone else could say, hey, I'm going to try that too. 
Yeah, very, very interesting. I think that this whole journey sounds, sounds very fascinating. Now, I want to ask you about your encounter with Vitalik Buterin, because I believe he was, what, 19, 20 years old? You yeah. asked him to take a look at your protocol, and then he basically <laughs> yeah. built yeah. Ethereum after looking at your stuff? Yeah, that was, that was so great. I love Vitalik. Uh, I, I just want to take this opportunity to say that everybody sort of has a, a feeling of, of how smart other people are in comparison to them. And Vitalik's on a very short list of people that I know are smarter than me. So he's, he's just brilliant. Uh, and I love reading his stuff. Um, and so yeah, um, one of our, one of our guys on our team knew Vitalik um, through the, the, you know, the community and he was writing for Bitcoin magazine at the time and sort of had, was developing a reputation as a, as a thought leader. And uh, they said, well, we should have this guy, Vitalik, look at our protocol. He's really smart. And I was like, sure, you know, have anybody look at our protocol. And I didn't really think, I mean, much, obviously he wasn't a huge name at that time like he is now. And uh, so sure enough, he looked at the protocol and he came back with this dense paper of all this, um, basically, it was the start of that idea of Turing complete money that he ran with with Ethereum. And I remember looking at it and I said, oh, this is brilliant. You know, like this guy is clearly really, really smart. And, I said, and then, so I was, I, I think I sent him an email or I was talking to him in some way. I said, Vitalik, this is brilliant. I love it. I, I hope we can do something like this. I, we have some more basic features that I want to get done first. And I remember to this day, I will never forget, you know, because of what happened. He, he sent me back an email and he said something along the lines of, you know, this is just really exciting to me and I don't think I can wait. I was like, oh, okay. You know, I, I didn't know what that meant exactly. But then he kind of went dark for a few months and and then Ethereum launched, right? And it was a huge deal. And I'm, I'm so, you know, he's probably better off if we had like latched onto that and kind of absorbed him into our project. You know, he wouldn't have been the founder of Ethereum. So um, I think that worked out better for him. Yeah, it worked works. out better for him. Maybe not so, maybe not so good <laughs> right. for the master coin. Right. right. So, <laughs> you know, that, the, the launch of, bitter, uh, the, of Ethereum was kind of bittersweet for me. Now, did he give you some founder status of Ethereum or oh, hook no, you up no, with no, some no, Ethereum no. or get to get some preferential Ethereum pricing? What he was doing was so, uh, you know, another completely different thing than what we were doing that, you know, it wouldn't, there wasn't really any need for that. It was all his own ideas. He, and, and he did credit us. You know, I remember reading through his paper when he published it and he credited us in the footnotes with some of the, the structures that he created. Then I remember you know, one of them was the idea of putting an Oracle in the, in the, in the blockchain, which is basically somebody who's publishing the price of gold or something, right? Because if somebody's publishing the price of gold in the blockchain, then other people can bet on it. And so I, I remember seeing, you know, some, some footnotes and stuff that credited the Mastercoin project with uh, with some of those ideas. And, I, and so I never felt any, any ill feelings towards him for doing that. Although it was bittersweet because at the time that we launched, you know, so the price of Mastercoin, which is now called Omni, the price went up 100 fold. And I had put all of my Bitcoin into Omni. And so when it went up a hundredfold, I sold like, I think it was like two or 3%. You know, I, I was arrogant enough to think that it was going to be huge. And, you know, I was like, I, I'm not selling any more than I have to, which, and then Ethereum launched and everybody started paying attention to that project. And the price of Omni started to go down and it went down and I never sold any more of it, but it went down almost a hundredfold. So, you know, people that got in during the token sale were above water, but people that bought at the peak of our hype, really, uh, some of them got very angry at me. Uh, well, what you've done has been very impressive. And of course, you're just getting started. I want to bring our other guests out of the, uh, the green room right now. He is actually working with you on uh, a new project, which you're calling the perfect 
token sale. It is uh, uptoken.org and now joining us, coming out from hiding. He's been back there going, yeah, yeah, JR, heard the story a zillion times. <laughs> he has heard it a zillion times. Neil yeah. Bergquist, who is the co-founder and chief executive officer of Uptoken and of CoinMe.com. Welcome, Neil. Great. Thank you. Now, uh, CoinMe, uh, you guys became the first licensed Bitcoin ATM operator in the U.S. Uh, four years ago, and you're now responsible for processing millions of dollars each month. Is that right? Uh, yep, that is correct. T- tell us a little bit more about CoinMe and where you guys are at and um, how this has worked out. Yeah, well, while the JRs of the world were mailing cash to Canada or sending money to Mt. Gox, we were trying to figure out how to clear the regulatory environment for Bitcoin ATMs in the United States and ended up starting with uh, the Washington State Department of Financial Institutions and brought down uh, some counsel from Perkins Coie, uh, Joe Cutler and Dax Hanson. We went down there and had an opportunity to educate them on what Bitcoin and blockchain was. And to their credit, they took the time to understand it. They saw it as money transmission. We satisfied the requirements. They appreciated that we wanted to also protect the consumer just like they did. And we were worried that the Silk Road and Mt. Gox uh, debacles were just destroying this amazing technological revolution. We wanted to find a way to bring it to the masses. And after a few months of that, they ended up giving us a license and we opened up a Bitcoin ATM in Seattle and have grown uh, since then. And that was back in Let's see, uh, May of 2014. This is interesting stuff. So how many of those Bitcoin ATMs do you guys have out in the wild? And how is Uptoken going to, or CoinMe slash Uptoken, going to facilitate the development and the placement of more of those ATMs? Yeah, we've been pretty slow on the deployment of ATMs. We have 40 now across the Western U.S., but we've been focused on building the software for the ATMs and building a a mobile wallet service that's actually hosted on the ATM or in your phone so that first-time users don't have the complexity of private keys or public addresses and things, and we found that to be really valuable. We've been slow to deploy the ATMs. We have about 40 across the Western United States now. We've been spending our time and energy on building software for the ATMs, a mobile wallet, uh, so that when you buy Bitcoin on an ATM, that you don't have to deal with private keys or public addresses, which we've seen to be a, a valuable thing for the majority of non-technical users. And then we now are doing 401ks and IRAs into crypto uh, through private client. But with Uptoken, now that our ATMs are validated and uh, and working to a high degree, we're ready to scale. So Uptoken is an opportunity to help accelerate the deployment of a global crypto ATM network. Hey, uh, Neil, I just uh, mapped from your site at coinme.com. It shows the locations. And there's one in Denver that's uh, actually a 23-minute uh, drive from my house in Aurora, which is Look at that. just east of Denver. So I might have to pop into Do you know what it's inside, what that location would be? Um, it's a it's a shopping mall. I'm not sure exactly which one. Uh, oh, well, you is. know what? I just did a Google map of it. I see it. It's on Alameda. So I'm going to have to go and uh, and say hi to your machine there. I, you know, just to I, I like to try some of these things just to say, hey, I, you know, I sent crypto using this thing or you know the other. So I think it would be fun just to get a little video there. Hey, this is a Bitcoin ATM. Look at how this works. It's shooting out Bitcoin at me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So uh, we found that uh, ATMs actually, while some people may think they're very 1980s, 
uh, we found that they're actually a phenomenal uh, way to bring Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies to the masses. I mean, the majority of the world is non-technical and oftentimes we get caught up in the Silicon Valley perspective of things and build technical solutions that are massively scalable. Well, you know, there's still less than 20 million people who even own Bitcoin, but the people who could probably benefit the most from virtual currencies, like in developing countries who need uh, an escape when there's periods of hyperinflation or just want basic uh, financial services, uh, they're the ones who can really benefit from virtual currencies. And so we see ATMs as being that physical portal into this digital world. Well, is that, is that the big vision? Is that, you know, where you see this going? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, I mean, we're already uh, executing on the vision within the, d- the developed world and um, offering uh, uh, the portal for buying and selling, sending and receiving digital assets. But I mean, when you start getting really excited about the social purpose of what we can do at CoinMe when you start thinking about the developing world and what this can do to uh, help developing nations uh, spur economic growth, give personal safety for their assets so that a lifetime's earnings don't go up in smoke when there's periods of hyperinflation. When people want to send money home with remittances, they're not getting charged 8 to 12% by the Western unions of the world, and that's just a corporate tax on the poor. I mean, you could literally increase Mexico's GDP by getting rid of those uh, fees associated to remittances. Um, there's just a lot of really exciting things that you can do once you bring Bitcoin and digital currencies to the masses. I was really curious about the up token in itself and what it does. But first, I wanted to ask about those ATMs because I've used one of these Bitcoin ATMs in the past and it seems like it's a really slow process to go from A to B because you have to verify, you got to put your ID on there, it's got to be scanned, you get a print and then it takes a while. And then it seems to me that there's a, a premium, you know, attached to that. So like if Bitcoin's at $5,000, you know, maybe it's going to cost me $5,500 or whatever to do a Bitcoin. That's the one that I've experienced in the past when I was at in Austin at South by Southwest. And it took a long time to actually do. And then me to actually sell it back took a long time as well. So to me, that's what seems to be the best need for an ATM is that like, for example, I am just now getting a debit card from Shift so I can access my crypto in my Coinbase account, right? So now it's going to be a lot easier for me to access it. A couple, a couple of weeks ago, a lot of my money, I actually had an automatic transaction happen where I bought a bunch of crypto. So a lot of money came out of my account. I was traveling and I was like, oh man, how am I going to gain access to cash right now? I have a ton of crypto, but I don't have access to any fiat and to go into an ATM would be really handy, but there was no ATM there. So what is the speed? What is the process like for somebody who is using one of these ATMs and how long does it take from you know, soup to nuts to actually get your money? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And and the user experience has been poor for early adopters. So since we've created our own software uh, that goes with the ATM, we actually are are fully vertically integrated so that when you go to the ATM uh, and depending on your amount, you know, put in your ID, we do instant verification uh, and then you can deposit funds instantly and then you print a receipt and you can do a transaction in seconds. There is no third-party wallets, um, you know, although once you deposit your funds, you can transfer them to a wallet of your choice if you prefer, which is fine. Um, but for a lot of first-time buyers, they don't have to get out of the gate. So yeah, it's taken a lot of software development, but we now have this fully vertical in solution that makes it a lot easier for the user to buy, sell. So let's talk about the ICO itself and the utility of the token. Uh, just go ahead and lay it out for us. How does this all work and, and why the ICO to, uh, to raise funds for this? 
So this is, I, I got to go back to that comment I made about shovels earlier, right? I mean, because the, it turns out that you, you, even if you invent a new protocol layer, there, somebody else can make a better one, right? But if you own a ton of ATMs all around the world, they, they can succeed regardless of which cryptocurrency is the ultimate winner, whether Bitcoin wins or Ethereum or something that is in someone's head right now um, that hasn't even been published yet. The crypto ATMs can be updated to use any of those. And there aren't a lot of infrastructure plays in cryptocurrency. I mean, there's mining and there's ATMs and there's not a lot else. I haven't personally been involved with any token sales since that very first one in history. And I was sort of just watching and waiting and sort of seeing what came out. And some of them looked interesting and some of them were good ideas, but I really wanted to see shovels. And when I started talking to Neil and, and his co-founder, Michael, about what they were doing with CoinMe, I started getting really excited because I recognized here is shovels, right? Here is something that doesn't care where the, which hill the gold is in. This is something that can succeed regardless. And so I started talking about this as a, hey, this is the perfect token sale. There's a, lot, a bunch of things that make it really awesome. One is the, a lot of these token sales, they come out with only a white paper. If that white paper, the idea in it is worth a million dollars, they might raise $10 million or $100 million, which is really inefficient if the idea is really only worth a million dollars. So what you want is something that is scalable, something that as, as you raise money, um, as money comes in, that you can spend that money in a way that scales uh, what you're building. And with ATMs are perfect that way, right? You raise more money, you build more ATMs, you distribute to more countries. Uh, and it's, it's great with ATMs because uh, things like compliance and things, uh, it scales really well. You get economies of scale doing that. Uh, the other thing that really excited me, and in fact, the reason that I'm personally participating in this token sale is the concept of having the people who own up tokens being able to choose which coins are supported on the ATMs. If you think about that, somebody like me, you know, Omni is still my baby and I still do everything I can to promote it and, and help it. I can use the up tokens that I'm buying to vote to put Omni so that there's an Omni ATM on every corner all over the world. You know, so that's extremely appealing to me and I think it will be appealing to others as well uh, to be able to influence uh, what the public sees when they go to one of these ATMs all over the world and which, which crypto coins are available to them. So that, that's also extremely exciting to me. Yeah. So I actually, so one of the ones that I saw the Bitcoin machines that I saw, it had Bitcoin, Ethereum, Monero, Dash and Ripple, I believe on it. Uh, that was in, there was one in, in Washington or Oregon that, uh, that had that in it. And so that's, that's fascinating to be able to, to be able to have the community vote on which tokens that they would like to have is, is a pretty interesting thing. So, so let me ask you this now, say I'm in Kansas city because I am, and I want an ATM near me and is, is somebody who has an up token uh, or enough up tokens or something, or can they buy an ATM or is it an ATM franchise opportunity or how, how does someone actually get an ATM near them? Right. Okay. So the, the, the up token itself is a, it, we think of it as a loyalty program or like you kind of think of it like airline miles or as cash back. So what, what happens with up token is CoinMe is giving with every transaction that any customer does on any ATM, 1% of that transaction goes to purchase up token. And that up token then goes to the customer 
Uh, kind of like airline miles, they can't immediately use it, except they can use it to pay their ATM fees. They get a, a 30% discount on their ATM fees if they use it for that. But they can't transfer it to an exchange or you know, sell it or anything like that. Once they've accumulated, I, I think the number is $10,000 worth of transactions. Once they've done that, then they, they unlock their token and they can do something like, like sell it or, or transfer it. Essentially, you know, CoinMe is going to be uh, continually purchasing these up tokens and, uh, and customers will be accumulating them. Some of them will use them, some of them won't. It's kind of up to the customer what they want to do. So it's, it's, it's a cash back. It's, it's a loyalty rewards program. Obviously, if they go to an, another ATM that's run by some other company, they won't be able to use their up tokens. They won't be able to use that discount. So it drives more people to the ATMs. Uh, and it provides an economy of people using up tokens, uh, which... Uh, is the main utility of UpToken besides voting. everybody to vote for an UpToken CoinMe ATM in my front yard that will dispense bad coin <laughs> on demand and, and print Bitcoin for me. Basically, I just wanted to, I wanted to mine. So let's talk about the ICOs. We get ready to close out here, Neil. Tell us about the, the coin offering in progress. Um, how many you know coins tokens are there? What do they get uh, for? What is it for Ethereum or Bitcoin? Just kind of lay on the tokenomics for us here. Yeah, it's an ERC twenty token. Uh, we're accepting five cryptos: Bitcoin, Ethereum, Bitcoin Cash, Ripple, and Litecoin. Uh, the sale runs through November seventeenth, unless we hit our cap uh, before that, uh, which is thirty five million dollars. Uh, essentially, you know, these are revenue generating ATMs, so we don't need a ton of, of capital in order to deploy a global network, uh, which is nice. So if you go to uptoken.org, you can learn more about the white paper and read the terms uh, and participate uh, from there. It looks like great fun. Looks like real utility. Is this um, considered a token that uh, U.S. citizens can participate in this ICO or not? Yep, U.S. citizens can participate. Uh, we got some great interest from around the world in Dubai, in Brazil, and Latin America. They're very excited about this and want to and put uh, CoinMe ATMs down there. We're in conversations with uh, several locations that have 500 plus locations. They want a turnkey solution. Spain is really excited about it. Japan, I mean, Japan has less than 15 crypto ATMs right now, and they have 127 million people, and they're one of the most active Bitcoin communities. So they're really excited about this. Um, so it's great just to bring the, the global crypto community together to really build the infrastructure uh, to take Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies mainstream. So it's just been you know, humbling to be part of this token sale and, and help spread that message. Well, thanks, J.R. Willett and Neil Burquist for joining us on Bad Crypto Podcast. You know, when, when you have the founder of the ICO and he's excited, uh, enough, excited enough about a project to partake in another one, this uh, definitely has our attention. And a uh, best place for people to connect with you, what, where do you like um, Tim to reach out? Yeah, you can, you can connect with us on Twitter at UpToken uh, on the website as well. Those are really our, our two main modes of communication, uh, depending on where you are in the world, Telegram, uh, WeChat, WhatsApp, those are all good places as well. Travis, would there be a Travis coin inside of, uh, of your crypto ATM? If there would, Travis, there, there, there <laughs> if Travis purchases is, enough up token, there might be. That's so funny. There actually is a Joel coin. Yeah. There is not a Travis coin because I'm, I'm just not quite that narcissistic. Well, I paid my <laughs> one way to make a Joel coin, and there's a million of them. None have been distributed as of yet, but there are, uh, you know, 10 billion bad coins 
about 200 million are in circulation uh, right out in the wild right now. And, and maybe we'll send <laughs> them to you guys. Yeah, maybe. That sounds great. Not sure what they'll convert at, but yeah, feel free to send them on over. Well, there's, there's no speculation value whatsoever. It's just for the pure fun of hodling. <laughs> yeah, we'll have a bad coin ATM. I love it. Perfect. Hey, thanks a lot, guys. Take care. All right. Thanks. Bye. Thanks. That, Mr. Travis Wright, is some good stuff. And somewhere contained within this episode, number 42, was the meaning of life. I hope they caught it. Somewhere over the rainbow, there are those who know the meaning of life and those who have yet to find the meaning of life, Mr. Joel Com. It's that and so much more are buried in our episodes. In fact, there's a number of Easter eggs and uh, sometimes you got to listen closely to pick up on them, but uh, that's going to do it for us. We appreciate you listening. Please do subscribe. And I know I say that every week, but it's really, you know, we're asking, uh, please do click the subscribe button and please do review our show wherever it is that you do listen because we're all the places and we love to hear from you at all the places. Write us at badcryptopodcast at gmail.com. Go to our website, click the contact form, or call us and leave a massage at 708-885-9030. And until next time, stay bad. And thanks for all the fish. Who's bad? The Bad Crypto Podcast is a production of Bad Crypto, LLC. The content of the show, the videos, and the website is provided for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. It's not intended to be and does not constitute financial, investment, or trading advice of any kind. You shouldn't make any decisions as to finances, investing, trading, or anything else based on this information without undertaking independent due diligence and consultation with a professional financial advisor. Please understand that the trading of Bitcoin's and alternative cryptocurrencies have potential risks involved. Anyone wishing to invest in any of the currencies or tokens mentioned on this podcast should first seek their own independent professional financial advisor.